Good morning to you again. If you would, please take your Bibles and open with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we're going to finish the scene with the woman at the well. John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42 will be our text. I hope you've turned there and if you would follow along with me, this is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 27. Just then, Jesus' disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. And see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word now this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word tells us that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And as we seek, Father, by your grace and through your Holy Spirit to build your church here, we do not want to labor in vain, and so we ask for your help, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would both understand and believe and apply what it is that your word reveals to be true. We pray for hearts that are ready to follow Jesus by faith today. Father, grant us illumination by the Holy Spirit, and may that illumination keep me from error and give discernment to your people so that we would all be built up in the truth and through that truth, Father, be saved on the last day when our Lord appears. We pray this in his name, confident that you hear us. Amen. What is God doing in the world? Right now, in the midst of an unfolding war, an uncertain economy, a rapidly changing culture, and countless personal trials, what is God doing in the world? Is there a divine purpose at work? And if so, what is it? That's a massive question, no doubt. Some people would say that it's a question that is simply impossible to answer. 
There's no way to know what God is doing, particularly when things are so topsy-turvy. Other people would say it's an irrelevant question. It's pointless. Whatever God is doing, we can't know it, and so it's not going to change the fact that i got to go to work tomorrow. Some people are so busy that they can't slow down to ask such abstract, esoteric questions. It's a massive question. What is God doing in the world? But for Christians, this is a question that we must answer. For the church, it is neither impossible nor irrelevant to consider what is God doing in the world. We must answer this because on some level our mission is tied up in that answer. The church exists to put God on display so that the world sees His hand at work in all things. Our identity as the people of God requires us to be ready with an answer. In other words, regardless of your calling in life, regardless of what it is you're going to wake up to do tomorrow, if you are a Christian, then you are responsible to answer this question. What is God doing in the world? And John chapter 4, of all places, gives us the answer. There are many places in Scripture that explain what God is doing in the world. We think of passages like Romans chapter 9 or Ephesians chapter 1 that unfold for us the plan of God in all things. There's many passages that explain, but John 4 does more than explain. John chapter 4 pictures what God is doing in the world. Jesus' stopover in Samaria is a real-world, flesh-and-blood illustration of God's purpose in all things. Look back at verse 23 that we considered last week where Jesus describes what it means to truly worship God. There's a phrase in verse 23 that puts us on the path to an answer. Verse 23, Jesus says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For, here it comes, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. That last phrase is remarkable. Why will true worshipers come to God in spirit and truth? Because the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Notice who does the seeking. Not us. God. Through the gospel, through the preaching of God's word, God the Father is calling out a people for himself. He is building a kingdom of priestly saints whose lives are reconciled to God through the blood of Christ. And those reconciled people proclaim reconciliation to a world that's desperately estranged from God. Friends, this is the answer to that massive question, what is God doing in the world. He's gathering a people for his own possession. A people whose very existence testifies to the power and grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's what we witness in John chapter 4. It's a real world picture, a flesh and blood picture of God's purpose in all things. Our passage today picks up that picture and shows us how God's purpose comes to pass. If verse 23 describes God's 
purpose, then today's text pictures the fulfillment of that purpose. It's not hard to follow. After her encounter with Jesus, the Samaritan woman becomes a witness. She leaves her water jar and she goes back to town and she tells people about Jesus. She becomes a witness. And through her witness, many more Samaritans come to embrace the truth. That's the fulfillment of God's purpose. God is seeking such people to worship Him. How is He seeking those people? Through witness. Through testimony. As those who know Christ use their lives to make Christ known. The purpose of God is fulfilled through the faithful witness of His people. That's what's happening in John 4 and that's what God is doing in the world. So from this from this overview, we can get our bearings, we can get our feet under us for today's study. As we conclude this encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, we need to pay attention to a few features. We need to pay attention to the woman's example of a faithful witness. We also need to listen for how faithful witnesses participate in Jesus' mission. And then we also need to pay attention to how Faithful witnesses reveal Jesus' glory. That's where we're headed today. Three pictures of what it means to be a faithful witness to Jesus. Picture number one is in verses 27 to 30. A faithful witness testifies to the power of Jesus. That's picture number one. A faithful witness testifies to the power of Jesus. Very abruptly, in verse 27, the disciples come back. You may remember that they were in town buying food, and while they were gone, Jesus revealed his identity to the Samaritan woman. It was an incredible moment. She had said, when the Messiah comes, he's going to tell us all things. And Jesus says, that's me. And then the disciples walk up. And they're like, we got lunch. They come back very abruptly. And their return brings another surprise. That was hot. Their return brings another surprise. Notice their astonishment. Verse 27. Just then, Jesus' disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? In Jesus' day, rabbis did not interact with women, and they particularly did not carry on private conversations with Samaritan women. In fact, Jewish custom at this time prohibited women from being instructed in the law. This makes Jesus' conversation surprising. The disciples do not expect their teacher to be talking to a Samaritan woman. And yet Jesus defies convention, doesn't he? Jesus defies convention. That's really an important point here. Jesus does not operate according to human custom. Rather, Jesus operates according to the word and will of God. And what does God's word teach about men and women? It's a question we have to ask here. What does God's word teach about men and women? That both are equally made in God's image, Genesis 1.27. That both are heirs of the grace of life, 1 Peter 3. That both do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Matthew 
4. The disciples are surprised that Jesus is talking to her. But friends, that's because the disciples' mindset is still conformed to the pattern of this age. In God's perspective, his glory is revealed in his image bearers, both men and women. And that's why Jesus goes out of his way to engage with this Samaritan woman. Listen, our world, if you haven't noticed, is increasingly confused about gender. So this is an important point for the church to recover and emphasize. This is not the main point of the passage, but it's an important point considering where we're at culturally. The world is telling us that our worth as men and women is found in throwing off the shackles of gender and forging identities of our own. The world even says that a biblical view of gender is oppressive and backwards and that it harms people. Jesus says otherwise. Jesus' example says otherwise. God created us, male and female, both displaying the fullness of his image. And in God's purpose for the world, he is calling all of his children, male and female, to not only embrace the truth, but to testify to that truth as well. To say it differently, it is Christianity. It's Christianity that ultimately helps people realize their purpose as men and women. The biblical view on gender is not something we should either run from or apologize for, but something we should lean into. Do you want to know what it means to be a man or a woman in the fullness of those words? Then come to the Bible and God will tell you, friends. Come to the Lord Jesus and he will show you that the fullness of God's glory is revealed in God's image bearers, men and women. So the disciples are surprised because Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman, but that's because the disciples are still thinking in worldly categories. God doesn't conform to those categories, friends. God conforms to the perfection of beauty revealed in his creation, particularly and especially, especially his creation of humanity, male and female. God doesn't conform to the pattern of this age. Now, the disciples are wondering about Jesus' conversation, but the Samaritan woman, to her credit, she doesn't waste any time. She quickly leaves behind her water jar, and she goes back into town. Notice her message, verse 28. So the woman left the water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? If you remember the beginning of their conversation, the Samaritan woman was not very willing to talk to Jesus. He initiated with her. She was dismissive towards him, at least at first, and she even asked him a derisive question. Do you remember? Are you greater than our father Jacob? You remember that she was not very willing. But things are, are quite different now, aren't they? This unwilling conversation partner has now become a willing witness. And her testimony highlights Jesus' power. Notice how she describes Jesus. This is striking. She describes him as a man who told me all that I ever did. That's remarkable testimony. Consider the woman's reputation. She has had multiple husbands, probably through adultery. She's currently living an immoral life with a man who is not her husband. Things were so bad that she would go to draw water in the middle of the day 
rather than risk having to talk to other people at the normal times, the beginning of the day or the end of the day. So we don't want to speculate, but who knows how much shame and rejection she has endured over the years. Combine that with a weight of a guilty conscience because of her sin, and you could easily see how this, this woman would want to avoid people at all costs. This is not the person that you would expect to become an early witness to Jesus. And yet that's precisely what happens. Instead of avoiding people, the woman engages them. Rather than hiding her past, she uses it as her testimony. He told me all that I ever did, she says. Understand everyone in town knew all that she ever did too. That's the point. She's not hiding from her past anymore. What was her greatest shame has become the most powerful piece of her testimony. That's the power, friends. That's the power. It's not simply Jesus' power to know the woman's past. It's Jesus' power to change the woman in the present. To turn her from a sinner lurking in the shadows to a witness proclaiming in the street. This is the power of Christ in the gospel. He takes a sinner's shame and guilt and he uses those things to display his power and glory. It's a staggering reminder that no sinner, no matter how guilty, is beyond the power and purpose of Christ. At the same time, the woman's testimony also puts the emphasis where it should be, on Jesus. This is important for understanding her role in the chapter. The woman does not dwell on herself. She doesn't focus on all that she has done. Rather, her testimony elevates Jesus. You can see this quite clearly in verse 29. Notice her very first words. Come, see. It's an invitation. Not to see her, but to see Jesus. It's a call to focus not on her past, but on the man who met her in that past with living water. See Jesus, she says. Come see this man. And then notice her final words. Verse 29. This is the only record we have of what she says. This is it. Verse 29. Can this be the Christ? That's a question that invites further investigation. It's hard to ignore that kind of question. Even Samaritans were waiting for the Messiah, so the use of the title Christ is an attention grabber. Can this be the Christ? You can imagine the effect. People are like, the the Christ? Really? I'm going to go see. I'm going to check this out. That's the effect of a faithful witness. It puts the spotlight on Jesus so that people are driven almost by force, almost by compulsion to come see this man. Who is this? In that sense, the Samaritan woman is a wonderful picture of how we can use our lives to faithfully witness to the power of Christ. What does it look like to be a faithful witness to Jesus? It looks like this Samaritan woman. We often talk about using our personal testimonies as a way of witnessing to Christ. That's good practice. A person's testimony, a personal testimony, can be an effective way to highlight the power of the gospel. This is who I was, but this is who I am now in in Christ. Personal testimonies are good. But there is a danger in personal testimonies. Sometimes we can get so caught up in the personal aspect that we forget to talk about Jesus. 
The, the person who's giving the testimony can kind of slide into the spotlight, and then we rush Jesus back in at the end as the one who fixes all of the stuff. That's where we ought to learn from the Samaritan woman. She's got all kinds of personal history. But who's in the spotlight? Jesus. What does her testimony encourage people to do? Come to Jesus. See Jesus. Consider Jesus. That, that's the example, friends. That, that's the application from her life. You may not have a backstory like the Samaritan woman. Or maybe you do. But either way... Either way, what's your job? Witness to Jesus? What's your role? Call people to Jesus? What's your testimony? Ultimately, all of us at the end of the day have the same testimony. Consider Jesus. Whatever the situation, this is what faithful witnesses do. They testify to the power of Jesus. Using their lives to put him on display. We're going to leave the Samaritan woman for a minute and we're going to turn our attention to the disciples. Verses 31 to 38 record their conversation with Jesus and it's here that we find the second picture of what a faithful witness does. Picture number two, a faithful witness joins in the mission of Jesus, testifies to the power of Jesus and joins in the mission of Jesus. Like a lot of the conversations between Jesus and his disciples, this one begins with some misunderstanding. The disciples are concerned about Jesus' well-being. Verse 31, they urge him to eat something. Jesus, for his part, responds somewhat cryptically. Verse 32, he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Of course, the disciples had gone into town precisely to buy food. So they're understandably confused. Verse 33, The disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Now, why does John, who's there at the time, why does John include this part of the conversation in the story? We have to admit that the disciples don't look very bright at this point, do they? In fact, they're guilty of the same mistake that the Samaritan woman made earlier in the chapter. Do you see it? Jesus was talking about living water. She thought he meant physical water. Jesus is now talking about spiritual food. The disciples think he's talking about physical food. They make the same mistake as the Samaritan woman. Why is that important to note? Because it indicates that the disciples, like every other person, stand in need of God's revelation to understand the truth. The disciples are still learning to see Jesus for who he is. Their discipleship is ongoing, in other words. And it's going to keep going until the resurrection on some level. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It means that you are always learning from Jesus. Always. It means that you are always growing in your understanding of who He is. You're always pursuing your life to be more conformed to His Word and less conformed to the world. And that process never stops. It it never ends until we see the Lord face to face. So the disciples, just like the Samaritan woman, need further insight. They need further revelation. And at least in this moment, Jesus gives them that. 
With great patience, Jesus explains the food that nourishes his soul, and it's not something you can buy at the grocery store. Look again, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus lives to do the Father's will. That's the point of verse 34. He lives to do the Father's will. Jesus finds life in accomplishing the purpose of God. That word accomplish is the key. It has the sense of bringing to completion, fulfilling, wrapping it up, getting it done. That's Jesus' work. As the Son of God, He has been sent by the Father for a particular purpose, to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is the light of the world, and whoever believes in Him does not remain in the darkness, but comes into the light, John chapter 12. This is the Father's work for the Son. And finishing that work, doing that work, completing that work is like food for Jesus. It nourishes His soul. It nourishes Him to walk in faithful obedience to the Father. Now, does this mean that Jesus prioritizes the spiritual over the physical? Is He somehow saying that the spiritual is better than the physical? Is He telling us that we can all just skip meals and just focus on serving God and it's not going to matter? No, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's not prioritizing the spiritual over the physical. Rather, Jesus is using an everyday image of food to help His disciples see the power of faithfulness. Faithfully serving God strengthens the soul. Being faithful to God is like food for your spiritual well-being. It nourishes you. In fact, we could even press this a little further. I think that we ought to. Jesus is saying that faithfulness today strengthens the soul for faithfulness tomorrow. Faithfulness in the present nourishes you to be faithful in the future. Just think about the image here of food. What what does food do for the body? Why do you eat three meals today? So that you can live and work and accomplish what you need to do tomorrow. You eat today so you'll be nourished for tomorrow. Jesus says that faithfulness to God works the same way. It nourishes the soul. The more we faithfully serve him today, the more our souls are strengthened to faithfully serve him tomorrow. You see how the Father's provision is working in and through faithfulness. It's really an astonishing evidence of grace. I'm convinced it's why Jesus uses this image of food here. Faithfulness to God nourishes us for future faithfulness. I had a professor in seminary who would often tell us, God's will for your life is whatever he has given you to do today. And he would often say that right before we had to get out our homework that probably none of us had done very well on. God's will for your life is whatever he has given you to do today. I have thought about that more in the last 14 years than any other thing that I heard in seminary. God's will for your life is not a mysterious thing that you have to struggle to decipher. God's will in some sense, is revealed in the present. It's what he's given you to do right now, today. 
And when we do those things, those today things, when we do those daily things with faithfulness to God, our souls are strengthened for whatever God's going to bring the next day. You see? Daily faithfulness really is key to strengthening your soul before God. So you may have, like I do, I have a bunch of things, a bunch of questions that I don't know about the future. And on some level, the Lord is saying, don't worry about those things. Do today's things. Do them faithfully. And in that faithfulness, I'll strengthen you for whatever comes next. Just do today. That's what Jesus is saying. His daily faithfulness strengthens us. Here in John 4, though, I want to make sure that we don't miss something. Jesus is primarily talking about his own faithfulness here. There's certainly things we can learn about being faithful ourselves, but Jesus is primarily talking about his own faithfulness. It's good that you and I are faithful in our daily lives, but our faithfulness rests on Jesus' faithfulness to us. Every moment of every day, Jesus was committed utterly and completely to obeying his Father. Think about that. Every moment of every day, Jesus was committed utterly and completely to obeying his Father. He never, he never even had a disobedient thought, let alone a disobedient inclination, let alone a disobedient action. Every moment of every day, Jesus was utterly committed to obeying his Father. Every step of Jesus' earthly life was one step closer to the cross, where Jesus would faithfully accomplish the salvation of his people. And that faithfulness was food for Jesus' soul. It nourished him. It kept him going all the way to the end. And the end, the end, friends, was our salvation. The end was our redemption so that you and I could also engage in faithfulness each day in response to the Lord. So we should certainly learn about the power of faithfulness in verse 34. But more than that, we should rejoice in Jesus' faithfulness, for in his faithfulness we are saved. As we move to verse 35, you'll see that Jesus shifts the image from spiritual food to a spiritual harvest. The link between the two is the Father's will. Jesus' food is to do the Father's will, and in verse 35... Jesus calls his disciples to join him in the harvest of that mission. Look again, verse 35. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now, we're going to have to follow Jesus for a minute here. We're going to have to track with his thinking he starts by recalling the normal course of sowing and, and reaping. Not many of us are farmers, so that's why some of Jesus' language sounds obscure here, but he's making a pretty common point. His common point is that the farmer sows the seed, and then what does he do? He waits. He waits until the harvest comes. The farmer sows, and then he waits. This is just the common way of things, and the disciples know that. But then Jesus immediately fast-forwards that normal timeline. Notice the end of verse 35. Lift up your eyes, Jesus says. 
The fields are white for harvest. Jesus speeds up the, the, the timeline in the image. And you can imagine the disciples, when Jesus says, lift up your eyes and see the fields white with harvest, you can imagine that when the disciples lift up their eyes and they look, what, what, what do they see? They see Samaritans coming. <laughs> they see Samaritans coming out from the town to see Jesus. What field is white for the harvest then? This one, Jesus says. This one in Samaria. This one right here. This is the field that's white for the harvest. So the sowing and the reaping are coming together in this one moment. The timeline for, the timeline for farming is getting collapsed, you might say. And that becomes clear in verse 36. Look at what Jesus says. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages. Already and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Now is the time for harvest. Even as Jesus sows the seed of his word, the harvest of souls stands ready for the, for the, weeping, or for the reaping. This is what God has given Jesus to do. It's an incredible coming together of the sowing and the reaping. The disciples shouldn't marvel then that Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. They shouldn't get caught up in the fact that Jesus doesn't operate by earthly convention. Rather, they should marvel at the fact that the harvest is coming out of Samaria right now, ready to be reaped. So that's Jesus' point there, 35 and 36. We followed his thinking about that. What's the significance? What's the significance of this Image. What's the point of the agricultural language? Well, remember a few moments ago when we said that the disciples still had a lot to learn about Jesus? Remember that they still had much to learn about who he is? This image of the sowing and the reaping is part of their learning. This idea of the sowing and the reaping getting collapsed together in one moment, that idea comes from Amos chapter 9. And in that passage, the prophet Amos foresees a day when the land is so fruitful that the harvest overtakes the sowing. The reaping overtakes the tilling. It's a picture of what God will do when he restores his people. When the Messiah comes, it will be a time of fruitful restoration. God's people will be gathered in together. They will dwell safely in God's presence. And their lives will be so fruitful. The lives of God's people will be so fruitful that the sowers won't be able to keep up with the reapers. It'll be remarkable. I just harvest all the time. That's Amos chapter 9. Now make the connection with Jesus and his disciples. When Jesus invites his disciples to look up and to see that the, the fields are right and white for the harvest, he's revealing who he is. He's revealing that he's the Messiah. He's the one who makes Amos chapter 9 come to pass. Jesus is telling them about himself. But, but, and this is the key. This is the key. Where is he telling them this? Not in Jerusalem. Not in Israel, not in Judea, in Samaria. He's telling them in Samaria. He's not simply the Messiah of Israel. He's the Savior of the whole world. That's what Jesus is saying. 
He's the redeemer of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's the one through whom God's global promise of restoration is coming to pass. That's why Jesus says, look at the people coming. Lift up your eyes. They're telling you who I am. What's happening in Samaria, what's happening in Samaria is a revelation of Jesus' identity. And therefore, therefore, the disciples, these 12 disciples who we can so often relate to because they get some things and then they don't get most things and they take one step forward and two steps back. The disciples stand at the crossroads of redemptive history. As followers of Christ, they are called to join in the mission. Lift up your eyes, Jesus says. Join me. Notice verse 38. I sent you to reap. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Who are the others in verse 38 that Jesus is talking about? Most likely it's the Old Testament prophets who have gone before. They sowed the seed of God's word and now the disciples join in reaping that harvest. But at the same time, the others in verse 38 also include Jesus himself. What has he been doing at the well with the woman? Sowing the seed of God's word. And the disciples now have the privilege of joining Jesus in reaping the harvest. This is why Jesus tells the disciples to lift up their eyes. Right here in Samaria of all places. In Samaria. God calls them to feast on the food of doing his will. God calls them to join in reaping the harvest. Even as Jesus sows the word, the time of salvation has come with Jesus and his disciples now stand at this crossroads. They can either sit there and scratch their heads while Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman or they can get out in the field and reap the harvest with him. Join Jesus in this mission of proclaiming the good news. The disciples stood at that crossroads there. And, and friends, that remains true down to this day for us. The church stands at this same crossroads. The church is the heir of this same call from Jesus. We're not in the same position as the apostles our ministry is not foundational for the history of the church. Nobody in here is an apostle. But even so, our ministry is joined with the Father's will for Christ. Our witness, our witness, both as individuals and as a church, is part of the harvest that God planned before the ages began. This is the mission of the church, to join with Christ in proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. That's food for us. That's the Father's will for the Son. To join Jesus in this work of proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. The fields are white for harvest. They're standing ready before our eyes. The mission field of discipleship that begins right here in this church, in this city, and then expands all the way to the ends of the earth. And listen to me, friends. Faithful churches prioritize this mission. Faithful churches. We could even say fruitful churches 
leverage all of their resources to prioritize discipleship. Helping people follow Jesus so that our lives look more like him through his word and less like the world. Faithful churches prioritize that mission. I know that everyone in here is tired of hearing about the pandemic. I certainly am. But the reality is that the pandemic did change the world in nearly every sphere, including the church. And while many of those changes have been hard, there is also a massive opportunity standing open in front of us. If there was any benefit, if there was any benefit to the pandemic's effect on the church, it helped us see what was essential for mission and what wasn't. So to use the language of this passage, that weird thing we've all been living through for the last two years, it helped us differentiate between what truly belongs to the harvest and what's just busyness. Lift up your eyes, Jesus says. Lift them up. Look. Even if we don't have all the programs we used to have, even if we don't ever get back to the same level of activity that we always had back in the day, the fields are still white for the harvest. The call to the mission remains the same, and it's open right now, today, for each and every follower of Christ. The call to engage in the mission of discipleship. To use your life to do good to others so that their lives look more like Jesus according to his word and less like the world. That's discipleship. And that field is white and ready for harvest and it's open for us right now. Just be honest with you. You ask me questions, I'm going to give you answers. And so I'm pretending that you just asked me this question so I can give you the answer. I'll be honest with you. More than ever, more than ever, you can ask my sweet wife and she'll tell you this is true. More than ever, I want to prioritize the things that matter most. Time is short. The gospel is amazingly true. And hell is absolutely real. And I want to prioritize the things that matter most. I want to give the best of my time to the most important callings. And friends, according to Jesus, that's discipleship. Beginning in our homes, beginning in our own hearts, in our homes, in our church, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, to the ends of the earth. I want to prioritize the things that matter the most. And that's mission. Outward looking, word driven, gospel-amplifying, faithfulness-feasting mission. Mission. Right now, right now, today, we can live this way. We can live this way. Right now, we can feast on the food of doing the Father's work by prioritizing the call to make disciples. It is such a moment of sweet mercy from Jesus when he says, lift up your eyes, look, and join me in that work. What will be the effect of living this way? If we prioritize Jesus' mission, what will be the effect in our lives and in our community and in our church? That's where we turn for the last picture. We're going to conclude with this. In verses 39 to 42, 
Picture number three, we learn that a faithful witness reveals the glory of Jesus. A faithful witness reveals the glory of Jesus. Again, the scene abruptly, abruptly shifts, and this time it shifts back to the Samaritan woman. Her witness has been faithful. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Living water in Samaria of all places. They even asked Jesus to stay with him. The Pharisees are trying to run Jesus out of town and Samaritans are saying, why don't you stay longer? The unlikely witness of the Samaritan woman bears unbelievable fruit. Look at verse 41. Many more believed because of Jesus' word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. That comment is not a slight to the woman. They're not slighting her. They're commending her. She has faithfully witnessed to Christ. She's called the people to come and see, and they have come. And in coming to Jesus, they have heard his word, his word that gives life. Samaritans, of all people, experience living water. The gospel is truly the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The final testimony from this unlikely harvest speaks to the glory of Christ. Notice the last words from the Samaritans, the end of verse 42. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's glory, friends. That's glory. Samaritans confess faith in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Salvation is from the Jews, but salvation will come to Samaritans and Gentiles as well. In fact, salvation will come to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The gospel will go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. That's what the Samaritans mean when they say that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's not only Israel's Messiah, he's the Savior of people from all across the planet. That's glory revealed in Samaria of all places. And it started with an unlikely, a very unlikely, but faithful witness. There's a lesson in there about how God's glory gets revealed, not in expected ways, not through powerful ways, not in the ways that the world would say are wise and mighty and awesome, but in unlikely ways, through unlikely people, in small places that no one would ever want to waste time on. That's where the glory comes. In this way, in this way, John chapter 4 is a picture of what God is doing in the world. What is he doing? He is gathering a people for himself. He is gathering a people for himself. Jews and Gentiles, Israelites and Samaritans, flagrant out loud sinners and quiet self-righteous sinners, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's what he's doing. He's gathering a people for himself. It's no wonder then that the Apostle John the Apostle John, the one who wrote that glorious picture of heaven's throne room in Revelation 5. It's no wonder that the Apostle John records this account in his gospel. It is indeed a small picture of what God is doing down through history. He's gathering a people for his own namesake. How is he doing that? How is God carrying out that purpose? Through faithful witnesses. 
through people who have come to know Jesus Christ and then who use their lives to testify to the power of the gospel. The Samaritan woman is one such witness, and you and I are called to join in that witness as well. Lift up your eyes, Jesus says. Join me in the harvest. And what a privilege it is to see the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus Christ and then to proclaim that fulfillment to the very ends of the earth, starting right here. I'm challenged by this text. I am challenged and encouraged and exhorted, and I hope that you are too. And so my prayer is that God would make us faithful to his mission, that we would hear Jesus when he says, lift up your eyes, and that we would join him in that work, and through faithfulness, that we would be strengthened, strengthened to continue serving him, our faithful one, and whose faithfulness is our salvation. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how kind you are that you would reveal yourself in glory and in power and in salvation to unlikely people in out-of-the-way places, all for the purpose of exalting Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge, God, that we are often caught up in things that are not the main thing, We want to be about the main thing, Father. We want to lift up our eyes and see the fields white for harvest and then beginning in our own hearts, to our own homes, to our own church, to our own neighborhoods and workplaces and the very ends of the earth, God, that we would join you in that work of making disciples through making Christ known in his word. Help us, God. Help us to be faithful. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And we pray now for the Holy Spirit's work to build us up in the truth for the glory of Christ. Amen.